Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to the Black Athlete Podcast. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. And you can check out my Audible on the African-American Athlete on Amazon. I'm Derek White, the author of The Institute of the Black World, uh, The Challenge of Blackness, The Institute of the Black World, and The Politics of the 1970s, as well as Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M, and the History of Black College Football. Welcome back, Lou. We have a, an amazing podcast here today with our first extremely, I'm going to, we're going to disrespect all our previous guests, but we this is the first Hall of Famer to ever join the Black Athlete Podcast. We are honored and pleasure to have Spencer Haywood with us. How are you, Mr. Haywood? I'm just fine, fellas. Thank you so much. Uh, this is an honor to be, I've been doing a lot of broadcasts and a lot of podcasts and ESPN and everyone, but this is my first time with my brother. <laughs> <laughs> I will take it. That's we'll awesome. Take I'll it. take it. And, and since you said that, let me just add the, the greatest player to come out of Mississippi, the greatest player to come out of Detroit. So, so let's, let's just, yeah. let's just throw yeah. it out there right there. <laughs> well, now we're going to start some problems with Jerry Rice and Gary Payton. I mean, and Gary, uh, <laughs> Walter Payton. Well, yeah. Yeah. Those two are there, but they, it's football. So they don't count. They don't count. Basketball, it doesn't count at all. Yeah. Got this thing, hands down. <laughs> that's right that's right uh mr haywood is the author a co-author of a new book the spencer haywood rule battles basketball and the making of an american iconoclast that has recently come out and we're here that we're honored and pleasure so we're going to just jump right in we are a week away about nine days away from the draft that is going to happen the nba draft that's going to happen on november 18th and if we look at any of the mock drafts that are coming out about who's going to go number one. One of the things that anyone will notice is that the vast majority of the top uh, prospects coming into the NBA are all underclassmen. Most have not spent four years at college. And one of the reasons, and if we polled all these prospects, how many of them would know about the Spencer Haywood rule? What was this, What is the Spencer Haywood rule and tell us uh, and tell our audience about your role in getting us to this point. Well, the Spencer Haywood rule is a rule that is not in existence at this point in time because the NBA collective bargaining is going on uh, with the Players Association. So they're going to give it its name right after all of this, this drama has taken place. But how it started was, you know, I, I was... Um, a student at the University of Detroit. I was the outstanding college player of the year, but I was a sophomore. And, and being a sophomore, you could not go into the NBA or any professional basketball unless you had finished your four years of college or set out for four years. And so the guys who, who uh, made steps before me, Wilt Chamberlain, played for three years at Kansas, and he decided to go to the Globetrotters for, the, for his uh, senior year. 
and he played there. Uh, Connie Hawkins and uh, uh, Roger Brown, those two players were blackballed and exiled from the NBA draft. So they went into the ABA later on in their career. But what I did was I uh, looked at the draft and looked at what was going on in the NBA. The NBA had selected Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the first pick and the ABA was coming after me saying, well, you know, we need something to hold on. The ABA was the American Basketball Association and they were, uh, you know, an upstart and it was in competition with the NBA and they wanted to come up with something to get moving so that they can get players before they got to the NBA draft. So they said, well, look, we'll go after the second best player in this draft that's not in the draft, Spencer Haywood. So they went after me and they said, listen, you know, if you can come into the ABA and average five points and maybe four rebounds, this gamut would work and we will be on our way. And at the same time, the ABA was, was like closing their doors. They needed something to uplift them. And so they signed me to a contract and Hannah Storm's father, Mark Storm, uh, Mike Storm. Mike Storm came up with the idea that when we introduced Spencer Hayward, the NC2A and the NBA and, and all of the other entities will like cry foul. So what will we use to introduce him on this podium? So he came up with the idea of reparation. Who <laughs> 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 said... Ladies and gentlemen, we are, we are giving Spencer Hayward reparation because at that time, my mom and my family were still in Mississippi picking cotton for $2 a day, for which I did uh, up until I was like 14 and before I moved to Detroit. But uh, we'll talk about that later. But in this section here, we're talking about them introducing me. And so when he introduced me, everybody in the press was like, yeah, we can't touch that one because you know, saying to black folks about reparation is like, oh no, no, we don't want to talk about that. So we'll let him go in, and he's gonna he's gonna fail anyway. So what the hell, you know? So <laughs> I got in there and showed him what failure looked like. I averaged thirty points and twenty rebounds, MVP of the league, MVP of the All Star game, uh, Rookie of the Year. <laughs> leading scorer, leading rebounder, and everything else. <laughs> so I won five awards that year. I, I can't remember the last one, but, uh, and then it was on. And so I played ball and we, we did everything. We uplift the ABA. We had everything going for us. Uh, players like uh, Moses, Ju uh, Julius Servin, George Gervin, all those players were like, I'm out of here. Because Julius would like hit me up, like, hey man, I'm over at UMass. I feel like I'm in shackles. You know, I've been playing at Rutgers and playing ball. I'm like playing, man. <laughs> I can't let loose. I can't let my game, you know, go. So those guys were coming, but the ABA, all of a sudden they had me and I couldn't go back to college and I couldn't go back to the NBA. So they gave me a fraudulent contract. Mm, right. Man. Right. They, they did you, they did you wrong. I saw that contract. You talked about it in the book. And I think it's one of the, 
there's so much great stuff in the book, but when you talk about your contract several times, this one, the Denver one really stands out yeah, um, because they robbed you. Right. And it's yeah, just like my first robbery. What they did was they, um, they gave me a contract on paper and for the press, for the, for all of the press to, to note that it was a $1.9 million contract. It was the highest paid contract in the history of basketball. Mm-hmm. And I signed the darn thing because I was just coming out of 19 years. I was just 19 years old, 20 years old. And so I didn't have an attorney. I, I just took them like the ABA has been my, my refuge. So I'm your guy. I'm the MVP. Right. You're going to take care of me and do the right thing. So what they did is they gave me a contract like that. And they had 1.5 of the money to be deferred how I would reach to this deferred money would be, I would put, they would put $10,000 into this so-called slush fund, a fund on Wall Street called the Dog Off Plan. And it was brought to their attention by a guy named Jeff Dogoff, who was a Wall Street expert. And, and that contract <clears throat> was to generate the 1.5 from the time I played for the first five years, I would get paid like 75000 or uh, 75000 And I know that sounds crazy back then. That was, <laughs> that was some good. nice guy. <laughs> nice. There's no free agency. The money, so the nice, money yeah. hadn't happened yet. And so what happened was they, they said, well, look. And when I looked at it with my attorney and my agent, the contract read that I would have to be employed to Ringsby Truck Line, who owned the Rockets, the Denver Rockets. Uh, I would have to be employed from age 50 to age 70 to receive $100,000 a year from the 1.9. And I mean, I played all of my my, my years and did everything, but I would still have to be employed. So it was similar to the idea of what I grew up under in Mississippi, because we would like be in in the cotton fields working and you never could pay off the debt you had to borrow money for christmas to survive you were like indentured slavery so they would always have this hanging over your head you got to finish paying us off you got to make sure you know we got the money here and so we always was enslaved to that farm so the same thing happened to me in the pros so then i um I decided, well, look, I, I guess I'm going to jump to the NBA, but the NBA would not take me. The NBA said, well, you know, you know, you got one more year left. And Sam Schumann, the owner of the Seattle Supersonic, said, the hell with that ruling. That ruling it won't stand and it won't stand up in court. Are you ready, young man, to fight it all the way to the Supreme Court? And I was like, yeah. Maybe I'll meet Thurgood Marshall, you know, yeah. what the heck? <laughs> so uh, when, I, when, when we filed for the rights to play, the NBA filed for an injunction against me. They filed saying that, you know, I'm ineligible to play in the NBA and I would be listed as an illegal player. And, my, and so what they would do is they would say, ladies and gentlemen, when I walk out on the floor, we have a illegal player. This game is under protest. Oh, wow. Mm. So it will, it will not count in the, in the books. 
And so I would get a 10, they would go do that for 10 days. And then I would get an injunction that stated that I could play. And they would like do the same rigmarole. And then they would get an injunction for me not to play. And this is going through the court system up lower into to the states and on into the Supreme Court. So then they would get one that read, look, he has an injunction against Spencer Haywood and he must be led out of this arena off the grounds in which this arena was done, was, was set on. And that was in, that was in um, uh, what was this took place in um, Cincinnati, the Cincinnati Royals. Mm. And they put me out into the snow. Dang. That went on for, you know, like another 10 days. I couldn't play. I couldn't even travel with the team. I couldn't be a part of it. And then my next game uh, back, I had an injunction to play for 10 days. And I was playing against the Chicago Bulls and Chet Walker claimed he hurt his ankle because now you know, you gotta remember guys that I am fighting against the NBA. The NC2A had their, their fingers wrapped around it and the ABA was suing me for breaking a contract. So I had three suits going on here. And so, <laughs> so Chet Walker said he hurt his ankle because you know, the old players, the older players in the league were had, they had been told by the owners that the fear of these young black guys coming young was going to drive them out of the NBA and also put them out on the street. Their families were going to be starving and so on. So they had to make a stand. And when he and the Chicago Bulls sued me for six hundred, I was six hundred thousand dollars. Mm. I was like, where am I going to get all this money from? <laughs> And, you know, so we, we fought and we fought and we got all the way to the Supreme Court and they heard the case and Thurgood Marshall said, well, you can't not uh, hold a person into indentured slavery because of the age. We got them going to the war. We got them going everywhere at age 18. You can do that, but yet you can't uh, make a living. And so what happened was he explained the case and such that the two revenue sports, basketball and football, were being held hostage for players because they were the revenue sports. Now, baseball, uh, hockey, any of those sports in college, you could go and just go into it whenever you want. And they were predominantly white sports, mm -hmm. whereas this one is a black sport. So they were like a little tinge of slavery here. And Stephen A don't like me to talk about that. <laughs> That's what was going on. So we came back and we won the case under the Sherman Antitrust Act. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, I was like so gratified to have that case won. And so for years, the NBA called it early entry, hardship, they have called it one and done, but they never would give me my name on it because of the fact that I sued the NBA. Right. So now 50 years later, moving forward, now the, the book came out, the ruling is here, and the players are just now learning about me because it was, I was like a, a militant outcast for all of these years, for the 50 years, because I would go up to players and say, hey guys, you, do you know who I am? I, I'm the guy who fought all the way to the Supreme I don't wanna hear, I don't wanna hear, you go away. You go away guy, you know? So I, I had that, that tag on me, you know, for all of those years. 
Yeah, one of the things that stands out is like I don't think people really understand when we talk about this tag is that you're like the Kurt Flood of basketball. Now Kurt doesn't Kurt gets his due, but he hasn't got his propers for the Hall of Fame. But the magnitude of what you did as about a 20, 21 year old young kid, right? To go, I mean, five years before that, you're you're picking cotton in Mississippi, and all of a sudden now you're you're at the Supreme Court with really one of the most you know consequential sports right lawsuits there is because that opens eventually that opens the door for all these players we see today the NBA kind of fought and fought and fought but it's changed basketball it's changed how we not even just the NBA but how we start our kids trying to play basketball right everyone's trying to get there early and nowadays kids are playing they're they're practicing two a days from the age of 13 trying to be the next Spencer Haywood right trying to get to the NBA at a young age. And I don't, don't think people realize how important uh, what you did was. Um, well, yeah. Well, Kurt was, Kurt Flood was just before me. We were in court basically at a similar time. Myself, he, and I'm Muhammad Ali. Wow. So when Kurt Flood, you know, they wouldn't give it to him. They wouldn't give him his case. They went back the following year and they put Andy Musselsmith's name on that ruling. Instead of Kurt Flood. Kurt Flood then left the United States and went and stayed in the islands for over you know 30 years. He came back to the United States and they brought him around to the major league baseball to say what he was what he was doing. But the players were, you know, basically islanders and so on from Dominican and so on. So they were like, man, I don't care about no Kurt Flood. <laughs> and so, you know, he died shortly after that of a broken heart. Right. He never, he never, never gave him his respect. And baseball has never given him his respects and put him into the Hall of Fame. It's never happened before. And it won't be happening right now unless we take a stand in this Black Lives movement to get Kurt Flood into the Hall of Fame because it's so important that his name and his family, Judy Pace, all of those people are, are now still living. He's got a grandson. I mean, we need to make a stand about Kurt Flood for the Hall of Fame this year, not like, oh, down the line, oh, right. my, oh, Mississippi River. <laughs> <laughs> and so let me just, let me talk about the economics of, of this ruling, my ruling. Yeah, please. The economics of my ruling is that we had only 14 teams, no draft pool to pull from because everybody stayed for four years. And usually if guys, you know, like what happened with the universities at that time, they will let you play for two years, three years, and then they will say, I got a new buck coming in and I'm gonna put you out of basketball and your, your, your scholarship is, is no good here anymore. And so they bring in a new player to take your place and that player felt so dis, you know, disjointed that he would like, just just start drinking or drugging or whatever and just never got to the NBA. So a lot of that was happening. But what happened was with the 14 teams, all of a sudden we started expanding, expanding because we had a draft pool to pull from. We had excess players. So the league started expanding and the teams were worth 200 and 300 million dollars at that time. Now they're worth three billion dollars from my ruling. Uh, the players, the players themselves were making, I know I got 
one of the highest paid contracts when I got to the NBA for 250. And remember earlier in 67, I think Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell was arguing over who's going to be the highest paid player. And Bill Russell got 125, Wilt Chamberlain got 125 plus $1. And then Red Arback gave him a $1 more, so it was $2. So it was $1. And so, that's how that thing happened. But also you look at the players and the revenue for the teams, they are up to $3 billion. The players themselves, I'll give LeBron as an example because he's the king, he's the GOAT. So <clears throat> he got four years, four years of salary at $45 million or whatever he's making. Yeah. That's like basically $200 million before he even, because before he would have to wait for that, that year, those years. He got... Four years on his legs, on his playing time, on his body, he got four extra. That's why he's, you know, averaging big numbers in his 17th year. We never played in the 17th year because players had spent four years in college and all that sort of wear and tear. You just didn't have that on your legs. So you look at those numbers and you look at, we did a calculation. It's around $24 billion in player revenue to the African-American community and not even thinking about what is happening now with the European players who are coming over and their, their lifestyle because they started at age 14, Luka Doncic, I mean, those guys play early and they get here. They don't go to college right. at all. Mm. They play professional all the way through, but it's okay because they are white. So Blacks, we want you to spend at least one year, one and done. Let's make sure we get some of that slave money and that slave labor because we built this country on that. I mean, so you look at the number, look at all of this, and you say, "Wow, how did this one guy help all make all this?" And we haven't even went to football. Football used a modified version of the Spencer Haywood rule, which means you play for three years and then you can go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this old cotton picker from Silver City, Mississippi. Silver City have no, it's not a city. <laughs> and it don't have any city and it don't have any silver. So it's a cotton field. I was, how did the Lord put me in that position, you know? I want to talk about and, and move on and jump back to, to your time in Mississippi. One of the things that was most striking, even though we're both historians and we're often familiar with these kinds of conditions is that, you know, you talked about how your coming up in Mississippi was akin to slavery in the sense that the, the debt peonage and the sharecropping system that was in existence, uh, that your mother and your family was operating for, for picking cotton for $2 a day. Is, and you too, right? Like that, <laughs> that, and that the threat of white violence was always kind of a, a pervasive I mean, that came through very clearly in the first half of the book. I want to talk about how you, you know, when you look back where you are now and made, you know, this multi-billion dollar uh, um, contribution to athletics, professional sports, how do you, you know, how do we understand this role and how many people like yourself never got the opportunity to go to Detroit and to be seen and there are certain kinds of opportunities, you know, I, I think that we, you know, I think you are really sitting at the cusp of this really important transformation and the, you know, um, the civil rights movement hasn't quite gotten to Mississippi at this point. It's about a decade into the mid 60s later. Uh, and you're on this point where like, 
you know, did you imagine that even when you were picking cotton at 13 and you're like six foot two, I think, or something like this, that yeah. you were going to be like, you know, basketball was a way out. Did you even have that as an, as a, an, a, no, well, what happened was uh, when I was born, my mother, we got like basically three days off for my birth and she had to swaddle me on her back, go back out into the cotton fields and start back picking uh, or planting or, or chopping whatever the, we had three layers of, of cotton. And so when the first, my first fondness, my first memory of anything was riding on her cotton sack. And, and I remember her saying to me, and I was like three years old or something, I couldn't understand what she was talking about. She said, pick the low cotton boy. You pick that low cotton there because my back is hurting. I can't get down there. Cause she'd been dragging, she had been dragging a sack that weighs a hundred pounds. And then she got the kid swaddle on her back too. And then she take the kid and put it on the sack. You ride on the sack and you're picking at the kid. So I grew up picking cotton. So my thoughts were as a kid growing up because basketball was not like anything that I could even imagine because all you see is cotton, cotton, cotton. And all, all of the people that you know is cotton, cotton, cotton. And the ones who escaped, they went to Chicago or to Detroit and their family was punished because they escaped the cotton field. And so it was always this, this thing hanging over. So my mom had told me, you know, my, old, my, my second to oldest daughter, my second to oldest sister, you know, my mom was raped by the farmer. And that's my sister, because mm -hmm. just the way it was there. Mm -hmm. And so, when you when you when you when you think about all this stuff, I was thinking that I was going to be the best cotton picker. This, this is my competition side. I was going to be better than my brothers had ever been before me, and I was going to be the best cotton picker that this county and and this this state had ever witnessed because I had big hands and I had pretty good hand, hand and eye coordination because I had been picking from two rows as a kid, picking cotton, you know, one row from the other and dragging a sack when I was like 10 years old. And that sack is up to a hundred pounds because you, you can't pick, you, when you pick the cotton, you got to go all the way down to like maybe a hundred, hundred yards away. And then you got to put that sack on your back and bring it back to the trailer, dump it in the, in the trailer and then go back out to the, to, the, to the field and pick some more. And the trailer is where you put all of the cotton. And so I had been developing that and developed that. And I would get up in the mornings. I would pick in the early mornings because I really took this thing serious. I'm going to be the best. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, I did not know that the higher power, God as we see it, or Allah, or whatever, it was, it was grooming me for this basketball player. <laughs> because I made mean, my hand and eye coordination was all good. Everything was good. So I, I mean, later on, I, I saw it all, but I didn't know at the time that was what was going on. But I mean, we sing uh, seriously spiritual songs and to get through that whole, it was slavery, you know, it wasn't like, you know, indentured slavery. I don't know what that means, but <laughs> I know that what slavery means. <laughs> so I was dealing with that. And so one day when I was growing up and then all of a sudden I started playing basketball, my mom gave us a basketball. It wasn't a, a real basketball. She had to make, we didn't have money. So you're talking about Poe, P-O. And so 
<laughs> so she said, well, I'm going to make you guys a basketball. And we were like, how are you going to make a basketball? A basketball need to bounce. So she said, don't worry about that. We, she put together this sack full of uh, cotton and, and quilts and everything else and put it inside there and tighten it up, tighten it up really nice and say, you guys need to take this and you act like you're making a bounce. Say one, two, make the pass or make the shot. Mm. And so we designed some rules around it. And then we got a, a barrel rim, put it up on a, on a made it on our back, on uh, the backboard. And we put the barrel rim up because we wanted to make sure that baby get in. It was a big old, big old. <laughs> <laughs> and so unless you were my brother, you, you took two bounces in your head and made pass. You got to say bounce, bounce, make pass. And he will always cheat. Andrew would like always say, I'm taking three, bounce, bounce, bounce. And then he would shoot his. And then we finally got a basketball from the garbage dump, which was in the back of our house. And we put a patch on it. Man, that thing felt so good just to bounce. It was just so beautiful. And we were like, what are we going to do for a rim? And we finally got a rim and put it up and we started playing basketball, man. And that was like, when we wasn't working in the fields, we played basketball. We played basketball. And I, I fell in love with it right away because my first love was golf because I, I, you know, we worked on the golf course too. So it, my first love was like, oh my God, this is like better than golf. <laughs> <laughs> I started playing and I got to high school, junior high school, and everybody was like, who is this tall boy? And my brother who had played before me name is Leroy and he was a big star but he left Mississippi and went to Detroit <laughs> so he abandoned the ship because they allowed you know him to go and stay with my aunt and so when I uh, when I was coming along and then all of a sudden the angry farmers start hearing about this guy playing basketball at 14 so they're like well we gotta keep him on the farm mm. we can't let him get off the farm so I go over to the country club. They have put together a quarter. They weld the quarter onto a nail, nailed it down because we couldn't go inside the club because blacks were not allowed to go into the clubhouse. You had a window you could be served because you were caddies. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was they nailed the quarter down. And this was at the same time as the, the Kennedy assassination and when the Kennedy assassination came about, I'm gonna go back to the quarter, but when the Kennedy assassination came about, they put us, all of us kids out on the golf course and hit golf balls that I had. Mm. Yeah. And that was like some cruel in, insanity, craziness. And then, but what they did with, for me, they put that quarter on there and I'm trying to get this quarter because I'm thinking in my head, man, I got some nabs, you know what nabs are, right? Mm -hmm. Cookies, little cookies in a package. And I got a, a nice cold Coca-Cola. I would be set for the day, you know? <laughs> and I'm trying to get this thing up. And this guy, Willie Harris, stuck his fist out and popped me in my face. I'm like, what's going on? And then the lady in the back, she ran out. And she's one of the members. He's disturbing the peace. He's disturbing the peace. Next thing I know, here come Jack Purvis with his gun hanging real low like he's a gunslinger. He's the sheriff. Mm. And he take me, put me in jail for a night. I'm sitting up in jail, man. I'm like, right. what's this all about? So the next step is, you know, they have been doing this for years. They put you in jail for a night or two or three. Then they move you up to Parchment Prison. 
and you, you just mess up your whole life and then you, you're relegated to the farm. My mother said, no, it's not gonna happen with you. So we raised enough money to, and we went out, of, went out to the next town. I caught a Greyhound bus to Chicago. I'm going to see my brothers to hang out and like, hey man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play in Chicago. I got there and those guys were like, they were like tricking us. They were like fool's gold, you know, like they would come down to Mississippi every holidays and stuff in a brand new car. And they had a big wad of money, you know, in their pocket in hand talking about, hey boy, I'm rich in Detroit, I mean, up in Chicago. I get there and we all living like we were in Mississippi. I'm like, right. <laughs> what was the catch here? And so the, the catch was that they were, had full, a full roll of money and the car was rented. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. So then my brother who had went to Bowling Green State University, he came over. I mean, he, he didn't have a rental car. He had a nice car and he had, um, and he, his clothes were not those jelly looking, I say Mississippi, Chicago style clothes with the stitches on these shoes and stuff, you know. And it was very cheap stuff. And so I looked at him and I looked at them. So we went out to the grounds and me and him played and played and played. And he said, you can't, you can't survive over here. Your, your brothers are drinking, they're using drugs, they're doing things. So I'm gonna move you over to Detroit, but we gotta find a place for you to stay. And so when I got to Detroit, they put on this big uh, tournament and this tournament where you played against high school all-stars I played against them and I had 26 points, 15 rebounds. And everybody was like, who is this nigga? <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and they were like, oh man, that's a cotton picker from up south, from down south. You know, you don't know any better. And so Will Robinson was the great coach who was looking at me like, whoa, wait a minute. This could take us to the state champion championship. So I got to like out and maneuver all of these coaches who are looking at this guy. And then they had another they had another game and said, well, maybe he's not that good. He got lucky. And so we played against the college players in the next game. I played three games that year, that day. Uh, and we played against Cassie Russell, Bill Buttons, uh, uh, Oliver Darden, all those guys from the University of Michigan, Michigan State. And so I had like 16 points and 10 rebounds. They were like, he is for real. And then they said, well, uh, the, the game is coming up next is with the Pistons and all of the pros. Throw the boy out there again. So they threw me out there and I did pretty good out there. And, and Dave Bing sort of took me under his wing and said, hey, you know, I'm going to watch out for this young boy. And Will Robinson uh, said, now, first thing we got to do, we got to get some adoption papers. We got to get you moved into Detroit and we need to find a family in the Persian High School District. And so they, he worked out the adoption papers and Ida James and Ida Bell adopted me and, and raised me. My mother released the forms and, and said, hey, you know, this is his new life. And that's how I got started in Detroit. And, and, and for our listeners, you, you bring up the name Will Robinson. Um, he's probably one of the greatest high school coaches ever. Um, and, and, and he had the teams at, at uh, with you and you guys won state, I believe in 67 with you and Ralph Simpson, not Ralph. to be confused with Ralph Sampson. Uh, <laughs> Ralph Simpson who played with Denver. Also we had right. uh, Paul Seals who played with uh, the Atlanta Falcons as a rap, wow. as a tight end. We had Glenn Dowdy 
who played with uh, the Baltimore Ravens as a tight end. We had Marvin Lane off that team who was played with the Tigers. So we had five guys who come off that same high school team with pro. That's wow. crazy because I was, you know, I have the, um, I have the uh, Michigan Chronicle. Oh, go ahead. The first black coach in NC2A Division One right. history. Period. And he's at Illinois State. Yeah, yeah Illinois State. But and it should have been, right? And it should have been Detroit, right? Yeah, it was supposed to be Detroit. That's why I left Detroit, the University right. of Detroit. I forgot to put that portion in it because they recruited me there with the idea that Will Robinson would be the coach and we would have. Uh, Ralph Simpson would come back from Michigan State. Uh, we had George Gerben coming up next. We had all of the young Detroit players was going to come to uh, the university and we was going to make this the powerhouse. We did get down to number seven, uh, number eight that year with me, with uh, Callahan, but uh, they reneged on the deal because they said, we got you here. Always some slavery shit coming up. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we got you here at the University of Detroit and you can't leave because you would have to sit out another year. Mm-hmm. That's how I ended up going to the pros. I want right. to back, back up a, a little bit because one of the things that, you know, you talk about arriving in Detroit and being a star at Pershing and leading them to a state title. Uh, and then you go off to college, right? And so one of the things that that, that comes through in the book but then me and Lou had to had to go look up to make sure that this was right. Well, you were talking about that you were going to attend the University of Tennessee. And so I work at the University of Kentucky now. Yeah. <laughs> been the second African-American player in the SEC behind Perry Wallace. Right. Uh, and, and that did not come fruition. But uh, but tell us what what made you a kid from Mississippi um, and, and who had left to go to go to Detroit to think that you wanted to come back to the Southeastern Conference and play in Mississippi on a regular basis even. Yeah, because my mom and my family had never seen me play. Mm. So I figured, well, this was an opportunity for me to be in sort of the north, but down south so my family could see me play. My mom could see me play once in her life because she hadn't seen me when I played at the, at the uh, in junior high school in, in, in Mississippi City. She didn't see me play in, in Detroit. So I thought, well, this would be an opportunity. And I knew the ramification because, you know, we could not, they wouldn't accept us at uh, Mississippi and Mississippi State <clears throat> and all of those schools. So I was just thinking that, you know, I could, uh, I could make a movement. It was sort of like a movement in, in a way because my friend Wiley Davis and I went down there. We thought we was gonna be revolutionaries anyway, because I had caught the bug in Detroit because mm-hmm. everything was like, you know, the, the city was burning mm-hmm. from the riots in 67. And so here I am out on this campus at the University of Tennessee, getting ready to enroll and everything. And then <clears throat> the powers that be in that conference were saying, well, wait a minute here. I thought Mr. Rupp was going to get the first black. Mm. And Adolph Rupp, who had just lost to the first five black players from Texas Western. So that was a, a, a yearn for that. And so we didn't, we just didn't, I mean, when I talked with him on the phone, he just called me boy, nigga, everything. Mm. So, and told me who I could not be socially with and everything. So was this the I, Tennessee coach or, or Rupp? Rupp, yeah, it's Kentucky. Mm. So I was like, no, this is not going to work. But Tennessee was like, 
they was in love with me. They were like, this is our guy, you know. <laughs> they had uh, uh, Justin Jury, you know, who makes the rings. Mm-hmm. The chairman of Justin Jury, Jack LaFleur, who lived in Knoxville. I was living around him and his whole family. And then they had, you know, Knoxville University and all of the black colleges around. So I was like, hey, <laughs> this is going to be fun. I know I'm going to have trouble when I go out on the road, but at home, I'm going to kill him. Mm. And, uh, and lo and behold, it didn't work out. So Will Robinson came up with this gr- grand idea, which would be, let me uh, get you down to Trinidad State Junior College, where I had Mel Daniels before me and uh, Ira Hodge before Mel. And so this is going to work out for you. It's close to Denver, close to Albuquerque. You're going to be a the man. So we get down there to Trinidad State Junior College. It's 360 miles from Denver, 420 from Albuquerque. I'm in the middle of no man's land. And so that's when I started really, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I can maintain this B average because you can leave from junior college if you maintain a B average at that time. And right. so I was like, my head was in the books and my game was in basketball because we had nothing else to do. Nothing. So I just, I practiced, I just enjoyed playing and I enjoyed learning things because I, I was behind because I, in Mississippi, you could not learn because everything was relegated to the idea that you got to stay on this farm. So we're going to shut down the schools when uh, elementary school, high school, everything, we're shutting it down when it's farming time. So you never get caught up with education. So there I was catching up with everything and lo and behold, the 68 Olympics is rolling around. And, and the word got to us down there, well, you know, Kareem is not gonna make it. We were like, oh yeah, power to the people, man. <laughs> oh, my power. Yeah, bro, stand up for your rights. And then they said, well, you know, but we're gonna like, um, the coach get in touch with me, like, we're gonna like bring in a junior college team to Hutchinson, Kansas, and you are the MVP of all the junior college players. So they want you to come. And I was like, Kareem was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) We done opened the door for me. (laughs) And Elvin Hayes signed his pro contract and Wes Unsell signed his pro contract. They put us in Albuquerque. Man, I was jumping over the basket because I was thinking, I'm gonna get a passport, finally. I want a passport. <laughs> and, and then um, they picked me first. And I was like, me? Yeah. Well, what am I going to do about this passport thing? You know, Because we had problems that Persian, when we were like looking for my birth certificate, we didn't have to have to sign an affidavit. Mm. My mother had to witness it. And so all of a sudden, we were getting ready to travel to Russia, Yugoslavia, and to Finland. No passport. So they called my mother, she had to come from the grocery store over to the grocery store to answer the phone. And she said, I got a passport for, I got this birth certificate right here. It's under John 21 (laughs) in my Bible. And my Bible is not gonna leave my side. Mm. Y'all gotta come down here and take a picture of this and get whatever you need. So it came down, took a picture of it. We go down to the Jackson, to the vital statistics. And there I was, Spencer, Spency Haywood, you know? Mm. And so I had my birth certificate, but my name was all wrong. So we had to change the name back to Spencer because the midwife who, who born, who gave birth to me 
well, my mother gave birth, but she was the one who was the doctor at that time in the Delta, Mississippi, because you couldn't go to the hospital. That was forbidden. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I ended up like on the Olympic team. And then I get, we, we, we travel down and we're like, we're in Mexico City and we're walking, we're like coming in on the plane and we were on the buses and stuff. We're looking at all the blood that was all scattered on the street because there had been a student riot. Mm -hmm. At the, at, at, at the university there. So they killed a lot of students. There was a lot of stuff, but they got us to the, to the uh, commissaries where we were living. And the first big guy I saw was George Foreman. He walked around all buffed up. <laughs> 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 and then those two guys came in and it was actually three of them. Of course it was um, uh, Lee Evans, Tommy Smith and John Carlos. They were like, you know, and everybody was like, trouble going to be here. Yeah. <laughs> trouble is going to be on this campus, man. <laughs> and so and so the coach was like, whatever you do, don't go over there, hang out with those guys. And I was like, after the, after everything would happen, we would like go and Charlie Scott and Jojo White and I would like go hang out and talk with Charlie, take with them boys. What's going on, man? Why are everybody scared of y'all? And they would talk about, you know, well, you know, Dr. Harry Edwards and Martin Luther King and Jesse Owens and all of the greats have gotten together and said, we shouldn't do a boycott, but we maybe should make a statement. And I want you guys to make a statement. I'm like, well, I'm just, I just got my passport. Right. <laughs> this passport thing, you know, like you can't just, you know, put me in it. <laughs> and so, and lo and behold, we, we participated in all of the games and everything. And then when Tommy and John won their gold and silver, they put on the black glove and just to salute to the people back home, black folks, because we were still, because the riots and all of the stuff was still going on. We were just making a, a statement, a statement of fact that, you know, man, we, we, we saluting you and making, you know, want to make things right. And Man, Avery Brundage came in there and he put put them out of the dorms and, and off the campus where we all were staying together as a as a as a USA team and marched them out of there with the press all over them, trying to scare us, the rest of us, not to do anything. And then the next round was George Foreman had the big fight against the Russian. He pulled up the American flag. I, I ain't going back to no boys' home in Houston. <laughs> Right. I'm not going back. So he had the American flag. And, <laughs> and so we played our game and, and we finally won the game. But before I won the, the, the gold medal, Howard Cosell gets in my ear and talking about, well, you know, those people in Detroit are going to be angry at you. You might not even be able to go back to Detroit. Mm. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was saying, well, the games are on all over the world. And the highest rating is in Detroit and Mississippi. I was like, oh, <laughs> so I got to say something. I got to do something. And, and, and my captain on the team, Mike Silliman, Jojo White, Jim King, and those guys, don't do nothing. Don't say nothing. Let's be cool. So we got my, I got my medal on the stand. I just broke down and just started crying, man, because I'm looking, wow. Three years ago, basically four years, I was a slave in the cotton field, mm. picking for $2 a day, no hope, no nothing. And now here I am representing the United States 
and this gold medal. And we've saved this country from the Russians, the Yugoslavs, because that was the whole preach on, in, in, in USA basketball at that time. And so I was like, wow. But then in the back of my mind, how am I gonna get back home to Detroit? What, them, what are them brothers gonna do to me? Because we just came out of the riots. We just, <laughs> you know? And so um, the governor and the mayor Governor Romney, not his, not this governor, but the, the other one. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and the father and and uh, his uh, the mayor Kavanaugh was like, we need you to come back to the University of Detroit. We're going to give the job to Will Robinson if you come back. Don't take no other offers or nothing. So I wanted to build something. Who had gave me everything that I started. So we're flying into Detroit, and Will was like, we got to brace ourselves. Them brothers are going to be mad at you. You didn't make a stand at the Olympics. So I get off the plane at Metro. Thousands of brothers, black people, everybody was in town, white and black, came out. We got our Olympic hero. And I was like, what happened to all this stuff Howard Cosell had told me? You know, <laughs> I was going to be hung and everything. They bring me downtown. They give me this statue and everything. I'm like, Howard, Howard, Howard. <laughs> And so that was my journey into the Olympics. Uh, that is That's, a fascinating story. I want to I want to pick up on something in the Olympics, but ties some of your like this one thread that I think really speaks to our listeners in the Black Black Athlete Pod is that not only did you you know you were a pioneer in, in terms of you know coming from junior college to the Olympics, no one had ever done that. No one had ever done it as a freshman. As a freshman, and then also you know challenging the the professional basketball rules about early entry. But one of the things that you've had in your career. Back up one thing with the Olympics. I did set a record in scoring. This lasted for four, uh, 44 years. Oh, wow. I, had a, I set a record and the highest field goal percentage still stands. I set a record in rebound. <laughs> <laughs> wow. If they gave, you and know. I'm 19 you years old. I'm the youngest player in the history of America. So, no, you were uh, phenomenal in the 68 Olympics. And one of the things that I think that's interesting in your career at various points is that you've had kind of legendary coaches. You had Will Robinson, John McClendon was an assistant coach for you on the Olympics and you played for him in the professional ranks. And then you also play, and you played for Bill Russell as well uh, in Seattle. And so, you know, what is it? I played for Lenny Wilkins in Seattle. And you played for Lenny Wilkins, right? So you, you know, like not everybody can say I that. played for Red Hoseman with the, with the Knicks. So yeah. wait, let's just put them on a spot. Who's the best? All right, yeah, that's real. That's a good question. I'm gonna put you on the well, spot. I enjoyed Lenny because he was my first uh, in the NBA. John McLendon didn't get a, didn't get a fair chance in Denver because there was so much racism in the ABA. They they thought that well, no, we can't like have coaches dominating the ABA black coaches, so they got rid of him. Um, Bill Russell and I had probably the closest connection because I idolized Bill Russell in the sense that I, I knew what he did and everything. But we as, as black players, when we got to Seattle, we didn't support him like we should have. There was always some, some shit going on <laughs> because we had a lot he brought in all of his brothers and we were like always in conflict. I mean, your car is bigger than my car. Your salary is bigger than my salary. Uh, maybe I'm going to jump on your girlfriend or your wife, you know, like so much drama. And 
these white folks looking at us like, what is these niggas doing out here? <laughs> so, so that was unfair for him. And uh, so that's when we should have, we should, we should have rallied around the, the flag in terms of doing right by Bill, but we didn't do it. And so I, to this day, I always tell him that we didn't, we didn't treat him fairly. We were like worried about what he was eating and stuff. Man, you can't eat no pork. You know, it was like <laughs> stuff like that. So it was just young guy. You were putting up 30 a game, so you could, you could eat what yeah, you, you wanted to. It, I was um, down in the rust. But see what happened, he yeah. made me the captain. And by me being the captain, all of the brothers were saying, oh man, you are his boy. You are against the yeah. system. Oh, yeah. So they, they, you know, I was like, oh man. And little did I know they was trying to get me out of there so they can have my spot in Seattle. And so that's what happened. So when I, when I got to New York, there I was there with a lonely heart and a broken heart from what had happened. And then, um, I see this, this beautiful girl came to our dinner and I was going to meet her roommate. And I kept looking at her, she had on her African garb. She had on her, her, her face was, was not covered, but her, she had on a Muslim garb. And I, at that time, because I had been studying with Abdul Rahman, who was great water uh -huh. hazard and Kareem. So we were studying and in Islam. And so there I was in this Imam. And so we're like, she just came in from Africa and I'm just coming in from Seattle by way of Mississippi always. And so we like, oh my God. So we just latched on to each other and I fell in love, man. It was like beautiful. I mean, my first time I took a break from basketball to be in love. And then I, I traveled over, over to the village and, and started indulging in my jazz, everything, all of my, the stuff that I had set aside. And, uh, and we started raising a family. We have a daughter now, uh, Zuleika. We now have a granddaughter, Lavinia and, and Zuleika's husband. So, and we, we were together for 12 years, you know, most people think we were just like a fly by night group, right. but we were married for 10 and was together for 12. And I brought over all of her family from Somalia uh, to stay in our home in, in New York because I had a brownstone. And so it was a, it was a pretty, good, uh, pretty good journey for, for black people, you know, in the sense that we were talking about something. We went on uh, ABC in New York and ABC and around the world, the morning show. And we were talking about uh, what we can do to educate because we were like sort of like pro-black in terms of we were talking about, you know, if the African-American could bring technology to Africa and Africa could bring us culture, then we would have this merger. And we and our marriage was about that merger of cultures. And boy, it was like, like we got we to gotta break them two up, man. That's too much power there. <laughs> so... And so later on, when I was on my way to, to I got traded to, uh, to the Lakers, that's when I got out to LA and lo and behold, I set everything aside because I, I went into one of those fancy dancy parties and they were freebasing in there, you know? And I, I said, well, you know, let me take a puff, you know, shit. I took a puff and I stayed there most of the night and I couldn't put it down. And I watched my life and my game go from 
from averaging 24 and 12 down to seven and five by the end of the season, I shallowed myself. And, uh, and then marriage and everything else started to shake and crumble because then they, they decided, well, you know, we're not gonna let you go to Dallas in the expansion draft. We want you to go out of the country. So they exiled me to Italy. Like I'm like Napoleon or somebody, you know, you go up there. <laughs> and so I get over to Italy and I'm in Venice and lo and behold, this Italian, oh man, Othello is back, Othello is back. I'm like, from the, from my books? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm in Venice. That's where he came, oh yeah. So I took on the name of Othello and I became the more of Venice and I was walking around with my stuff on like, yeah, I'm the man. And then the NBA came back and got me out of it. <laughs> you gotta get back to America because we don't want you building up uh, sports like that. Right. And so uh, while with the Washington Bullets, my wife had a, a real bad automobile accident in, in New York in a cab. So I didn't know how to tell the, the team because they was always had me on such a short leash, you know, he's, uh, he's an addict, you know, remember mm -hmm. the whole league was an addict, but <laughs> this guy is the problem because he sued us mm -hmm. and all of this stuff. So he's the troublemaker. We're going to, we can always put the finger on him. So I didn't know how to ask him for time off and whatever. So I just quit basketball mm -hmm. to go home and take care of my family because I had her two Somalian sisters living with me. Her brother was there. And we had a young daughter that's three, four years old, you know? So I said, hey, it's basketball. And so there I was. Wow. I yeah. mean, so I want to, let, let's, let's thank uh, Spencer. Oh, let me just explain to your audience, you know, now I yeah. went to treatment. I did treatment. I got my life together. Uh, I remarried. I now have not only one daughter, I got three more daughters. <laughs> I have Two doctors in that group, two educators, one psychologist, and uh, one is teaching at the historical black college and in uh, Lincoln University outside of Philly and in Philly. Uh, Isis, y'all probably know, she was at uh, Bleacher and Slam. So she's the youngest. And then of course, uh, Zuleika is my oldest and she still works with Iman Inc and Coke Industry of all places. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's funny. I've had three years of sobriety, so it's yeah. been a blessing. No, this yeah, that's. I think that's one of the things. Okay, I was gonna say this. One of the things that comes out in the book is the honesty um, of talking about the drugs, but then also mental health. And I think that I think it's so powerful for people to to hear, right? Um, because that's where we're at as, as, a, as a society, right? Where we're, we're talking about these things and people need a lot of help. And you, just by mentioning your struggles and your triumphs, I think with the people that read it, you'll give them a lot of help. And then those later years, what you're doing for older vets, right? right. To make sure that they have the, the health insurance, to make sure they have the pension. Like yeah. you've done well, so much for the league. Forward, so I fought hard for that. But before that, I mean, when I was when I was seeing my psychiatrists and psychologists, I mean, they kept telling me, you know, you're suffering from PTSD. And I'm saying, no, I don't have a venereal disease, man. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have it, you know. <laughs> so. So, and I'm, I'm thinking, well, they keep explaining it to me, you know, like, well, you know, you had it from, you were like 
in Mississippi, that was a stress. You're talking about it from the case that wrapped you up into what you had been and the ostracized from players who you paved the way for, who were like, put him out of the league, get him out of here, you know, because they didn't know. And so I, I had all of this stuff pushed down in. And so the drug kind of like, you know, it didn't help, but it was like a demonic level of, of my, my, the way it hit me because I was like, this is so strange for me. And so when I, when I got off drugs and, and got my life straight, I decided, well, no, I'm going to go with Dr. Ben Jacanon, uh and, and John Henry Clark. We're going on an African tour. So I went on a tour with them throughout Africa, Egypt, and we studied real hard. And they was telling me, see, this is where you come from and how, you, how did you do this? And then your wife is, your former wife at that time is an African. Brother, what are you doing? I was like, I don't know. I fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> so uh it was it was a round journey and then when 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 everything got so clear and they and they, everybody was like talking about you know well the, the retired players are so out of order we're like suing each other we're suing the board members suing each other so i stepped up and said hey i'll take it over and i took it over and i went to LeBron, Chris Paul, and those guys and said, man, we have people who are struggling, man. Mental health, we have, our health insurance is bad. Uh, we, need, we need some things. And they were like, so we got it right here. Tell us what you want. And I was like, whoa, we need health insurance. We need the same kind of health insurance you guys got. Okay, check, you got it. I was like, oh, really? How much is this gonna cost? Uh, I think it's gonna run about 15 to 16 million a year. All right, in fellas. <laughs> well, what about our pension? Can we have a little raise, a little taste? Yeah, we'll give you 3%, whatever the law allows. I'm like, oh. And so all of the retired players, like, would have been our leader all along. <laughs> and so, you know, life has been pretty, pretty cool, man. And, and, and we have a lot of uh, retired players who are. Uh, talking about mental health issues. We go around, we're doing uh, camps and clinics and we, we speak into, uh, we are speaking to a number of African-Americans. We all are, uh, are suffering from some serious mental health issues because our health, we, we, we've been treated so bad in this country. And we, we and like Doc Rivers said, we have always, and he, he cried about it. We have always loved this country to the max and this country never loved us back. Right. So we're getting a chance to now feel that love a little bit because you guys got out on the street and said, hey, enough is enough. We want, we want Black Lives Matter. And everybody was like, ooh, we, them boys gonna get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and so, oh. I'm so proud of you, young folks, man, young men and women. My daughter's out on the street and everything. So I just look at this. This is a glorious time because America has learned that we cannot have these people so disenfranchised uh, that we need to work together as a team. And I look at it as an Olympic team. You know, because when you're fighting against everybody else, all the other countries and everything, now we have a pandemic. 
We have economic crisis upon us. We have all of the stress and all this mental health that not only white, white and blacks now, Hispanics and Asian, everybody is in this big tent. We are in the bubble like in the NBA. We're in a bubble. Right. And we yeah. now do something to get out of this bubble. How can we get out of this bubble? We're gonna have to, we got to work together. And with the election just taking place, I look at uh, what the young players did, both men and women, WNBA and the NBA, what they did in the bubble. And everybody asked me these questions. Well, should there be an asterisk by this? I'm like, are you crazy? These people put their lives on the line to save America and to give us some kind of entertainment because we're all locked up in home, both WN and the, the NBA. I mean, they should have two trophies. Right. <laughs> That's a yeah. Man, do you know what it's like to put your life on the line and to be away from your family in a bubble? You don't know whether this is going to be long-term effects if you, if you come down with COVID. It's just, I'm so proud of them. It's like, wow. Like, these people have like shown me that what I did in 1970 and 71 by opening up these doors has been my reward right now that I'm living, I'm living through it. You know, I've been married to my wife for 30 years and uh, it's just pretty cool, man. And I have, I have relationship with my former wife, my, my, all my kids and my grandkids. I got two Two grandsons come and they telling me, even though one can't talk, he's too young, I'm gonna come to the NBA and I'm gonna make them remember you. And so uh, I got Chris Paul, LeBron James, Steph Curry, uh, Kevin Durant, all those guys are now working on my ruling and thus the name of the Spencer Haywood rule because you know, you do have two rules in the NBA. You have the Oscar Robinson rule, which is all four, all 14 teams coming together and, 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 and giving him a rule. And you have Larry Bird rule, which the NBA took my rule and gave it to Larry Bird. <laughs> and Larry Bird, I'm looking to him and he said, man, that's your rule. I don't want no, no Larry Bird rule. That's your rule. Cause I'm under your rule. <laughs> right, right. So now they're, they, all of the, the stars are aligned after all of these years, man, that is uh, the Spencer Hayward rule will be named. So when the draft come up, not this year, but next year, they will be announcing, you know, like this this number one player coming into the NBA is under the Spencer Haywood rule. And That's like, powerful. This is this is yeah. Man, God breathe. I mean, it may not you know in my Hall of Fame speech, I, I was I sang the old Mahalia Jackson song. I said, It may not come when you want him, but it's always right on time. Oh wow. Yeah. That's it. That's it. We 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 uh we, we want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us. Um, we we this has been an honor and a pleasure. We I we're gonna do let's let can we do a couple rapid fire questions? Lou asked us one before we started taping. So so here's a quick question: Who is the uh, best singer in Detroit? You told us this before, but we want it on record here. Motown. Well, Motown. Like I, I told y'all David Ruffin off records. <laughs> but I mean, everybody in Detroit will hang me. And Stevie Wonder would be mad forever. Uh, Smokey would be mad. And Philippe, you know, from, <laughs> from, 
from all it. And then, you know, my, 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 one of my favorite was uh, Levi Stubbs, you know, from the oh, four wow. tops. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And uh, Diana Ross was right there with them because she had something else that was there. And so when we talk about Detroit and Motown, and when I was in college at the University of Detroit, this is where everybody would hang out at our games. And they brought me over to Motown to the studio and listened to the recordings. Uh, um, Melvin Franklin from The Temptation would bring me in and I would just sit there looking at the strings and listen to the orchestra. And even though I was a jazz man at that time, I was like, this is the greatest thing that ever happened. I was just kind of pretending to be hipper than I was. <laughs> <laughs> because I was, you know, like I had saw in uh, and, and, and college, I saw Wes Montgomery playing at Baker's Keyboard, the oldest jazz club in the world. I saw him playing, and he had his cigarette stuck in his guitar string, and he's playing, bumping on something. And then when we were like, is he going, what's this? What about the cigarette ashes? You know, it was like long burning ashes. And at the end of the song, he hit it, broom, and the ashes fell out. We just like, Fell on the floor. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> and then, you know, a couple other times we all, we, we saw Miles up there and Miles turned his back on us and was blowing and kind of blew because he was struggling, you know, from substance. Mm -hmm. And then Pharaoh Sanders was playing long songs. We were like, is this shit going to ever end? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and man. We, you know, like listen to it. And then we would go down to the Fox Theater when we was in high school and listened to uh, all of the Motown review, everybody was on stage. It was just everybody. And we would just sit there all day and most of the night, catch that Woodward Avenue bus, getting back out to Coney Gardens. Oh man, Detroit. I came up from Mississippi listening to the blues. Boom, 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 boom. Hey, good baby, you know. And so I get to Detroit and it's like that Motown sound. Boom, 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 And they just kicking it. Oh, I bet you're wondering how I, you know, it was just so much going on. Detroit was like a bomb <laughs> city, man. Everybody was working at Chrysler and Ford and General Motors. Man, that was sweet. <laughs> Do you have a quick question? Uh, yeah, rapid fire, rapid fire. Uh, 21 year old Spencer Hayward, how much, how much would you put up in today's NBA game? Oh, I would get him 30 and 20. Yeah. I was ahead of the game then, you know, because what happened was I remember, you know, ripping the ball off the, off the, off the backboard, kicking it out to Lenny. Lenny kicked it back to me and I just took off from the free throw line behind it almost and just dunked and I turned to the audience. Yeah. And they were like, oh, no, he's a hot dog. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know if I would be doing no 30 and 20, but it would be, I would be right there with the big dog. We would be barking real loud. <laughs> <laughs> All right. One more. I'm going to ask one more. Uh, who was your uh, best teammate? <sighs> My best teammate, and we didn't get a chance to, to roll like that, was Kareem because we had been, we, we, when he had problems in Washington, they had the home up there and they, exiled him for a minute. He came to my home and lived with me in Seattle oh, wow. in 1972, 73. So we had this feeling we had studied together and stuff like that. And so he was so disappointed in 
my journey with the Lakers because, I mean, I wasn't listening. I wasn't, you know, Magic was right there. He would drop those passes on me and then we'd go into the film room. And like, I was like in denial because I was an addict at that time. So I was like, look, Magic is putting too much spin on the ball. Look at it. I mean, you know, you'd be lying. He's on drugs and shit. <laughs> well, Kareem, this guy hook is not coming off on the side where I'm rebounding from. I, I get a good position and his rolls around the rim and come off the other side. I'm like, yeah. So that was a pretty good teammate. Earl Monroe was awesome playing with him. Uh, Fred Brown uh, up in Seattle. Uh, I've had some great teammates, man. I, I, you know, my Olympic teammates, uh, Charlie Scott and, and Jojo White are like family. Uh, Charlie Scott is still alive and we still spend a lot of time. I've been on the phone with John Carlos and Tommy over the last, cause we got the 50th anniversary coming up. So I just had this wonderful sports life and, and in the entertainment, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time with all of the entertainment people. So it's been pretty, pretty cool. But, uh, I would think Kareem was the one because we were spiritually connected and so on. And he was, he is the GOAT, but we can't say that because he's seven foot two. Ah, he's the GOAT. We, yeah. we can say it. You can say well, it on this podcast. Say it because you got to have somebody, a, a forward or somebody, you know, but in reality, <laughs> you know, that's the GOAT. <laughs> oh, man. Well, this is. I say right now that, that because, you know, uh, if you're talking about between him and, and Michael Jordan and LeBron, I'm going to take LeBron on that one. Right. I know you guys are like the Jordan guys. I'm a Dominique guy, so, you know, oh. go ahead. You guys got Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm a Dom- yeah. I, I always, Don't get no credit for how he played. I always make the argument that it's Kareem just because I think we, we you know, it, sometimes this goes in waves and, uh, our students have never really seen Kareem. And when I know when I was coming of age uh, in the in the early 80s, you know, it was the tail end of Kareem's career, but he was so dominant watching them with the Lakers. And, you know, you're seeing a guy who's 34, 35, you know, finals MVPs, and, and you realize he's the all-time leading scorer and three consecutive uh, player of the year in, in, in college basketball. I mean, like when we start looking at this, can't, you can't bring in college into it because we got guys coming out of high school. I'm just saying that it's on his resume. I'm just saying it to your audience for an argument. No, <laughs> it's great, man. This has been an amazing years in high school. Hey, yeah. <laughs> All-time winner of all times, you know. Right. Yeah, I mean, he's it's it's, it's amazing, and, I, and I'm glad you were on this. Is we're just we're just we're tickled that you you took the time to talk to us about this fantastic book that's about honesty, about uh, you know uh, you know history making, um, also about you know personal struggles and and triumph and i think that 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 is not this is just your life is not a basketball story but really a story oh, of black america in some ways like more broadly speaking, there you go. that there we you, go. you know you coming out of mississippi out of the deep south and and migrating to detroit is a story that millions of african americans have taken uh and you are able to 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 really you know take it to international with your success in the Olympics and in success in Italy 
um, in the professional sports, but also, you know, battling personal demons uh, and coming out on the other side. And so we are, we are very grateful and thankful for the time that you have given us uh, on the Black Athlete Podcast. Um, we really do appreciate it. Lou, do you want to have any final words here? Nah, man, this is the great. I mean, we had we had the uh, best player from Detroit and Mississippi, but go ahead. Yeah. I was really excited about getting on with you guys because I had told you before, I've been doing everybody, NBC, everybody, but I was like, when am I going to get to the brothers? <laughs> so I'm here. Thank you so much. Thank you both. I mean, it's just so awesome because, I mean, this is our history and this is our story. And it's coming to life through this book. And we have the great Mark Spears, who's one of the right. writers. Gary Washburn, the second one. And this is from the NABJ, uh, National Black Association of Journalists. I mean, it's, it's our history. And we cannot deny it any longer. We need to embrace it, talk about it. And most of us, uh, our families migrated from from the south to the north, because they know boats come up there and park. They park down in, in, the, in Mississippi, Carolina. All of us was down there as slaves. So, right. and we weren't slave people, but we were indentured. We were like captured and slave. And we, 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 put, we worked for 200 years or 300 years for nothing. That's right. Yeah. So to our listeners, don't forget, you can pick up the Spencer Haywood Rule Battles, Basketball, and the Making of American Iconoclast, uh, authored by uh, Mark J. Spears and Gary Washburn about the great Spencer Haywood and his career, uh, both in the NBA and his post-career. This has been a fantastic, fantastic story. Uh, and I'm so excited that you're here. And it's great that, you know, it wasn't really clear that they were going to change the, the Spencer Haywood rule. So it's exciting to know that we are also breaking news uh, here. <laughs> we're breaking news here on the Black Athlete Podcast. Uh, and we look forward to 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 this becoming a household conversation every year uh, as young young stars make their way from you know high school into the professional ranks the to pay a debt of gratitude to your legacy uh, and 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 the the really the lawsuit and the the sacrifices that you made on but on behalf of yourself but on the entire league so thank you very much thank you so much and it's a real pleasure to be with you guys. Thank you. All right. Thank you. And peace. Peace. Okay.